0: So we've been looking uh, at passages that have had a major impact on the Christian church down through the Reformation period. We'll continue to do that for several more weeks. Sometimes when we talk about these figures from the Reformation, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, Ulrich Zwingli, as we said last week, uh, sometimes as we talk about these guys, I think we forget that they were real people in the midst of incredibly uh, difficult circumstances, real life struggles. Luther himself was often on the run. So in 1517, Luther nails his 95 theses to the door. A year later, he's declared a heretic by Pope Leo X. Leo described Luther as one whose faith is notoriously suspect and is, in fact, a true heretic. In 1518, a year later, he's charged with heresy. In 1521, Luther was excommunicated from the church. He was summoned then to appear before the council at Worms. On his journey back, that's where he famously stood, said, I, um, here I stand, I can do no other. On his journey back, he was essentially kidnapped by Frederick of Saxony. They, he had his guys come and pick Luther up. They took him to the castle at Wartburg. At Wartburg, Luther grows a beard, lengthens his hair, And changes his name to Squire George. You don't think he was fearing for his life? In those days, they burned you at the stake for being a heretic. You didn't just walk out of a church and go somewhere else. They tracked you down. They charged you. They excommunicated you. Then they burned you at the stake. That's what Luther was up against. Just not even a hundred years prior, John Huss in Prague had been burned at the stake for daring to say and to challenge the church who was refusing to give the cup of the Lord's Supper to average, ordinary people. And Huss said, that's not right. And essentially for that challenge to the church, John Huss was burned at the stake. Those are the times these men lived in, difficult times, challenging times, constantly on the go. John Calvin's life was essentially identical in many ways. Calvin in in 1535, 1536 goes to Geneva. A year and a half later, the Genevans say, we don't want your reforms, and they send him packing. Now, when when an entire town and the town council comes to you and says, you're done here, You could be not just done there, you could be done everywhere. They ended up bringing Calvin back to Geneva sometimes later, but just suffice it to say, Calvin, Luther, Knox, Hus, and, and thousands more just like them underwent terrible trials for their faith. For daring to hold things like salvation is by grace, true faith, in Christ alone. For saying those simple things, they could be challenged, excommunicated, and killed. The stress and strain on these men in the midst of trying to do all of this and then care for their church. They were pastors. They loved people. They wanted to shepherd the flock. And so in the midst of all of those things going on, they're just trying to shepherd God's people. Challenging in its own right. How could these men endure so much and keep plotting on? How could they go through all of that and continue to say yes to Christ, love the church, and preach the gospel faithfully? How do you do it? One of the, the doctrines that they all held near and dear that stands out, that I want us to spend a little time thinking about this morning, is the doctrine that we call union with Christ. Now oh, that sounds somewhat fanciful, but we're going to see it in the, in the verses that Russ read for us this morning. Because there in those verses, we get an amazing picture of union with Christ. Let's look at the first two verses, verses 12 and 13. This is the Apostle Paul, and these verses establish for us and set the stage for us for a very similar type of situation with one of God's pastors, one of His preachers. Verse 12 and 13. Paul says, now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, verse 13, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and I went on to Macedonia. Now, that may not sound like a whole lot, but let's unpack what's going on. Let's. Let's set the stage, if you will. The Apostle Paul had planted the church in Corinth himself. He spent about uh, roughly 18 to 21 months there. He labored amongst those people. The city of Corinth, prior to Paul's arrival, had been destroyed a 100 years earlier. So over the course of those 100 years, um, it it, it had been rebuilt and was now a, a thriving city, a thriving center. Um, it 's somewhat of a of a coastal town beautiful location and and because of its location because of the the the, uh, the the swath of land that it sits on, almost everyone passed through there and so it was a significant trade route it was kind of a cross section and intersection if you will of all sorts of people it was a Fantastic place to plant a church. And so Paul had gone there. He had planted the church. He, he had um, really remarkable success among, amongst the Gentile believers. But the Jewish believers, on the other hand, not so happy. Paul was there. He left. He went on to Ephesus. And while he's in Ephesus, bad things happen there for him. Paul says in chapter 11, verse 28, that out of all of the things that had happened in his life, the pressure of caring for the church was greater than all of those things. We'll look at them in just a minute. So Paul left Corinth. He moved on to preach elsewhere. And then he began to get reports back about the church in Corinth. He begins to hear things that were going on. And so Paul writes... 1 Corinthians and sends that letter back to the church in Corinth. Now, if you look at the letter of 1 Corinthians, you'll see all of the issues that are going on. Now, think about this. Paul went there, he planted the church, he had great success, he's there roughly two years, spends two years of his life pouring himself into these folks. They bought in. They believed the gospel, they trusted in Christ, he establishes a church, Two years later, he's writing a letter back to them. The issues? Divisions. That was the first and foremost thing. You want to know how uh, how to deal with division in the church? Go read the first part of 1 Corinthians. Because what they had done is they had chosen up. Uh, there were several other disciples, apostles that had come through. Apollos had been there. Others had been there to help minister to those folks. And the Corinthians chose up sides. One chose Apollos, one chose Paul, one chose Jesus, and they had these little factions in the church. And it nearly ripped the church apart. Tragic. So Paul writes back First Corinthians to deal with these divisions. They had massive sexual issues. Things that would make you blush. Paul writes, he deals with that. They had issues with food sacrificed to this God or that God. How should they deal with this? People were Relationships were fractured. All kinds of problems. Worship was a mess. To top it off, someone had come in and was now teaching that the resurrection wasn't true. All of this is taking place, so Paul writes the letters back. Now, just begin to imagine... Your heartache, your pain. You've pastored this group, you're you're essentially a missionary, so you're moving on to another place to plant another church. He had given them the truth, he had invested heavily in them, and now they were abandoning all of those things. Paul was was heartbroken. He he had a heartache for them. In addition to all of this, false teachers came in. These false teachers mixed in Judaism, they had some pagan philosophies, they took a little bit of Christianity, they mixed it all in, and they began to teach their concoction of all of this stuff. They sought to take over the church, but of course to do that, they needed to dethrone the one who had planted the church, and so they began to attack the Apostle Paul himself. And they attacked him personally, in every way you can possibly imagine. Paul identifies the real desire of their hearts was to get rich. They accused Paul of teaching false doctrine. They said he couldn't preach, that his stature was weak. This was Corinth, after all. This is a place where they were used to impressive speakers, flashy, urban prima donnas. The Apostle Paul was none of that. And so they went after him personally. It was a mess. But Paul loved them. Paul loved them, but he was now on the outs with them. And so he went back for a very brief visit. He wasn't there long because someone who had infiltrated that congregation stood up and blasted him publicly, and so he left. But he wants to restore the relationship desperately. 2 Corinthians bears that out. It has all of the hallmarks of the desire for restoring relationships. And Paul gives us there in 2 Corinthians a road map to make sure we're right with people. He left Corinth. He went to Ephesus. And, of course, in Ephesus a riot erupts that nearly costs his life. Things are bad. I want to show you, if you'll take your Bibles, let's turn to 2 Corinthians You can see on the pages of this letter how bad things were. Chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. We'll just make a quick trip through it, okay? Verse 8, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death, but this happened. That we might not rely on ourselves, but on God. Turn over to chapter 2, verse 4. For I wrote to you out of great distress. That word is a word we would normally uh, translate as depression. I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. Chapter 4, verse 8. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. Verse 10, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Turn over to chapter 6, verse 4. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, distresses, beatings, imprisonments, riots, and hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. Chapter 7, verse 5. For when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within, Verse 6, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. We'll talk about that again in a minute. Chapter 8, verse 7. But just as you ex- excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge, verse 8, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. Chapter 11, verse 23, are they servants of Christ? I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Verse 24, five times I received... From the Jews, the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move in the danger, in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from my, from Gentiles, in danger in the city, danger in the country, danger at sea, danger from false Brothers, I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I've been cold, naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. That's the Apostle Paul. That is where he's at as he is writing 2 Corinthians, as he is is attempting to deal with with the pressure and the struggle of all of that stuff. He's at the end of his rope. Not hard to understand his grief. In the midst of all of that, what would you normally run to? You would normally run to a friend. Someone who, can, who would be able to connect with you. And that's what happens. That's what happens in this passage. So, Paul has written 1 Corinthians... He's now in Ephesus. All of these things have happened. He writes a second letter, which we don't have. It's often referred to as the severe letter. That's the letter that he refers to in chapter 2, verse 4. Paul sends the severe letter with Titus. Titus is to take the letter. He's to go to Corinth, read the letter to them, share the letter with them, reason with them, and hopefully win them over. The plan was that they were going to meet in Troas, Troas is in Asia Minor, so he was going to cross, he's going to leave Athens. He's going to cross over the, um, uh, the Aegean into Asia Minor and travel up to Troas. Titus is supposed to take the letter, go to Corinth, reason with them. Then he's going to go to Troas, and he's going to rendezvous with the Apostle Paul. And there, of course, Paul hopes that Titus will come, and he'll have a good report from Corinth. Titus. Paul gets to Troas. He waits for Titus. And Titus never comes. At least not then. Paul is heartbroken. That's where we pick up the letter. That's where we're at in verse 12. When I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, what does he say? When I got there, I found that there was an open door for me in the Lord. The Lord had opened a door. The Lord had made a way for him so that he could minister there in Macedonia, in Troas. He's there. He's so despondent. He's so discouraged. He's so beaten up that it says he left. I went to Troas to preach the gospel. I found the Lord had opened a door for me. Verse 13, I still had no peace of mind because I didn't find my brother Titus there. And so I said goodbye to them and I went on to Macedonia. Now think about that. The greatest evangelist the church has ever had has an open door for him in the Lord to preach To establish a church. Paul didn't establish a church in Troas. We read about one later. So it must have risen up in spite of the Apostle Paul not having done evangelism there. The Lord was going to build his church. But Paul was so discouraged, he couldn't even be a part of it. He was discouraged. Why? First, everything that happened in his life. And then what was going on in Corinth. And so, he leaves and he goes to Macedonia. Now, he, re- he rendezvoused with Titus later. But that doesn't happen for a good while. So verse 14 comes along. Let's read it. But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. So, in verse 13, he's saying, I just couldn't do it. In verse 14, he's saying, but thanks be to God. I say, what what took place there? One author says what took place was Paul decided to focus on something different. Paul decided that all of the heartache, all all of the stuff that was going on in the church in Corinth wasn't worth his time. But there was something that was worth his time to focus on. And that was being united to Christ. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. Now, when we hear that, when we read that, we just think, okay, that's that sounds cool. That's, that's nice. So what's the big deal? The big deal is that that word triumphal procession is absolutely loaded. Because... Paul's original hearer would have understood what a triumph was. You and I don't know. The closest thing that you and I can come to in terms of a Roman triumph would be probably um, at the uh, inaugural parade that happens every four or eight years. That's probably the closest thing, and that's a real poor thing. Uh, close, okay? It's not even in the same ballpark. Let me, let me give you a few uh, tidbits. There are only, uh, depending on who you read, 230 to 300 Roman triumphs ever. Now, over the span of uh, the Roman Empire, that's not a whole lot. In fact, you were lucky as a Roman citizen if you ever saw one. You would have certainly heard about them because they were amazing spectacles. As the empire grew on and grew weaker, uh the triumphs grew greater, okay? And and the reason for that was their power was diminishing and so they wanted to do all they could do to make it seem as if their power was as great as ever. But a Roman triumph, just listen to this, was a spectacular victory celebration. It was held in Rome and there was a route that would, that would go straight through the heart of Rome. Everybody would know about it. And typically what this was, uh, and, and the way that it would happen is, the, the, uh, it would take up an entire day. It would, be, it would start with a speech before breakfast. The victorious commander... Okay, so a Roman triumph was thrown for a Roman commander. And you had to have all sorts of conditions that had been met on the battlefield. Uh, they had to have expanded the territory. They had to have conquered so many soldiers in a certain battle. And all of these things had to have been met in order for a triumph to be thrown. They could be there there were lesser triumphs, okay, that were given, but uh but this is uh uh, the, spe- the nature of a spectacular Roman triumph. So the victorious commander would, would get up and he would speak before the Senate, the magistrates, his army, and, and the entire public. The crowd would first salute him and then they would offer appropriate prayers and thanks and uh, they would do all of that to the various gods. He would praise his legions and he would mention specific individuals for their contributions. He would give out decorations. And then after breakfast, he would put on a, a purple-colored robe, called a toga, and, uh, and then he would be ready for his big moment. The, pro- the procession would enter the city at a spe- specific point, um, a large gate that was there on one side of the city, and it would work its way all the way through. The consuls and the politicians would lead. You would expect that, right? Uh, they want to get all the credit. So the politicians would be the first group, and they would march through the city streets. All along this route, of course, thou- it's a parade everyone would come to see this general who had just conquered armies far away. He would be followed by a number of impressive-looking captives from the battlefield. So they would take all of these captives, they would chain them together, and they would march them through the city. Best of all... um, they would put the captured royals, perhaps. They would theatrically enchain them. So if they had captured uh, a general from the other opposing army, or if they had some famous politician, they would put him in the middle. Typically, they would, they would ride him on a float, exactly the same way we do floats now. And they would put him on a float, and they would chain him up in a theatrical way. And they would make him look like the loser he was. And they would march him through the entire city. And of course, everybody would be hooping and hollering. Certain episodes of the battle might be presented. They would paint pictures, right? They didn't have any moving screens. No one had seen any battle footage on CNN. And so they would paint these murals and they would march the murals. If there were walls that had been scaled, they would have pictures of those and they would be able to see all of that. Sometimes they would have captives, the slaves that had been captured in battle. If there was a naval triumph, they might actually do a nautical theme in the midst of it all. Then there would be musicians and torchbearers and flag wavers and all of this pageantry would be going on. In the midst of it, they would take flowers and, and all kinds of spices from around the world. This is Rome after all. And they would throw all of those spices, all of that stuff would line the road. And then Everyone would walk over it. And so, as they walked over it, what would happen? That aroma would waft up into the seating, into, the, into the, all the bystanders. It would make an incredible, memorable experience. And then the star of the show. The star of the show would come just before him, all of the booty. All of the loot, all of the goodies, the more gold the better. And they would pile it up and they would have it overflowing in jars and and they would march that through the middle of the city. And then the godlike victor would ride in a spectacular tall-sided chariot pulled by four horses and he wore a laurel crown and he carried a laurel branch in his right hand and in his left hand he had an ivory scepter with an eagle on top which was the symbol of triumph. And he was accompanied by a slave. And the slave's job was to stand behind him. And he would hold over his head the crown of Jupiter. And he would continuously whisper in his ear as they went through the city that he was only a mortal and not actually God. (laughs) Why do you think he had to do that? Because they were heaping the praise on him. And so they would go all the way through this. and It would last an entire day. At the end of the day, they would have a magnificent feast. And everyone in Rome would be invited. That was a Roman triumph. Paul steals that image. And he says, but thanks be... Now remember how low he was. And now he says, but thanks be to God who always leads us as, you see that next word? Captives. He leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. And He uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma that brings death to the other. We are the aroma that brings life. <laughs> Several years ago, I was on my way back. I was traversing from Bahrain to the United States uh, with the military. And we, we got held over in southern Spain. It's terrible. Terrible place to get marooned for about a week. Um, so, Southern Spain in May, tough duty, and uh, and we're there. And a group of us had, had were, were traveling around, and uh, we were having dinner one night. And as we had dinner, um, out of the out of the local Catholic church comes this massive parade, and there's people marching in front, and they're throwing rose petals and um, rosemary everywhere, and they're marching and they're throwing this, and then they they march through and it. Come to find out, it was the Feast of Corpus Christi. And it was, a, it's an ama- it was an amazing experience because that aroma, right? I mean, that's really why I remember it because all of that rosemary was trampled under feet as they walked through town and, and we, you could smell all of that. And here, Paul says, You and I are the aroma of Christ to those who are living. And to those who are dying, to those who are perishing, and to those who are heaven-bound, you and I are the aroma of Christ to the world. I want you to think about that. Think about the way that the Apostle Paul found his hope. I mean, he's low, 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 rock-bottom. But the thing that brought him joy, the thing that brought him out of that, was for him to focus on the singular connection he has to Christ. You want to know how the Reformers made it through all that they went through? They knew that their life was bound up in Christ. They knew that they were an aroma, the aroma of Christ to those who were perishing and to those who were living. And that's how they went about life. Uh, they frequently talked about their lives. If if they were to offer their life as a sacrifice of a, you know, of one kind or another, so be it. And so many of them did. Because they knew they were bound to Christ. It was enough. It was enough to know that they were in the parade. It was enough to know that they were connected to Christ, that they, even as captives in Christ's triumphal parade, that what they were doing was mattered to the world around them now I want you to notice the phrase and I want to kind of tie this in and just cement this for you they were an aroma right and to some that aroma smelled like death and to some that aroma smelled like life but they were the aroma of Christ and that's really important it's important for this reason. You and I, as we're bound to Christ, our job is not to be offensive to the world. What he's not saying is, right, you know, to those who were perishing, to those who didn't get it, we just rubbed it in their noses. No. He's saying, listen, to, to the world around us, both to those who love Christ and those who don't, we are the love of Christ for the world. And how do we do that? We stay focused. I'm the one we're united to. We are united to one who loved the world so much He offered Himself as a sacrifice of atonement for them. If Jesus died for them, if Jesus loved them, you and I can love them too. And there's a whole big world out there that's perishing. And you and I are called to go and be as a part of Christ's triumphal procession. As a part of the parade. As a part of the great triumph. You and I get to be the aroma of Christ for the world. What, what does Paul say? And who is equal to such a task? Right? Verse 16. And he says, and who is equal to this task? Who? Who is possibly Up for this. He says there's a whole lot of folks that are doing it because they want want to get rich or they want fame or they want this or they want that. They want to be noticed. And Paul is essentially saying, who is equal to the task of being the aroma of Christ in the world? Not me. He will say that over and over again. In chapter 4, he talks about the fact that we have this treasure, this gospel in earthen vessels. Why? Why? To show the surpassing greatness of the glory of God. Not about you. Not about me. All about who? All about the King who leads us in His triumphal procession. Listen, that's what the Reformers were all about. Sola Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone. And to the King who sits upon the throne. What a great legacy. Luther, Calvin, and Knox have left us. Let's stay focused on our union with Christ as we move out into the world this week. Let me pray for us. Father, thank You for Your goodness to us. Thank You that it is Christ alone. It is in Him that we stand. It is in Him that we live. And it is in Him that we will die. Father, we thank You, we praise You, we ask, Father, as we live this week before You, as we go out into the world, that You would raise us up, use us for Your glory and all things. And remind us, Father, no matter the difficulty, no matter the struggle, no matter where we find ourselves this week, nothing surpasses the glory of being united to Jesus our Savior. In His name we pray.